Five scores! Rick Bud. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Bud. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 79 of the Squid and Ultimate Leap Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leap Fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we creeping? You get from under that snow the last couple of days you got crushed with? Oh, my goodness, Mike. It was, a, <laughs> I got to tell you, it was probably about two and a half feet of snow. It was crazy. And then the snow banks after the plows went by are probably about four feet high. But, It'll disappear before long. Very like the old days, just like the old days growing up. Well, our guest today, we got a special guest today, somebody you played with in Buffalo. He was drafted by the Sabres in 1988, spent 14 of his 16 years with them, known for his tough play, fan favorite, has a rule named after him. That's something you don't have, Squid. Uh, He's written a book called Razor's (laughs) Edge, Uh, works for the Sabres on radio broadcasts. Please welcome Rob Ray. Rob, first off, thanks for joining us. And how you keeping? Did you guys get hit with the snow too that we got in Toronto? Yeah, we got bombarded with the snow. And actually, today it's forty degrees here. It's melting like crazy, and it's flooding everywhere. So, yeah. you know, it's created two problems in the last week that everybody has to deal with. But hey, we we expect it here. You get it once a year, maybe twice, and uh, you know, it keeps you honest. Yeah, you get you get hit pretty hard there in Buffalo. We usually don't. It usually kind of goes like this around us. But this time we got about two and a half feet, so we got quite a bit. And uh, I was shoveling the other day, and it, for about three hours it took me to shovel out just the bottom of the driveway after the plow went by. So anyway, well, so cheap that's you part of being somebody to do that for you. <laughs> Well, I, I, I don't have any work, Rob. Oh. <laughs> Not here in Canada. <laughs> but now, speaking of work, uh, Rob, how are you keeping yourself busy these days? Uh, we're busy um, doing the games, do the color with uh, RJ and Danny Dunleavy there. We do every game, whether it's uh, radio or TV. And so that, that keeps you on your toes. My kids are young still. I got a 12-year-old boy that is deep into hockey and so you're always on the road going somewhere every weekend and practicing four or five times a week so there's really not much downtime when you're not at the rink uh, you're at another rink somewhere in town or somewhere in the you know the country now is the city a buzz right now with the bills obviously moving on to play kc this weekend are you caught up on that too no, I'm not, I, I, I enjoy football and I enjoy seeing them do well. Yeah. I'm not a, like a diehard fan, like, uh, you know, majority of the people in this town are, yeah. but it's a buzz right now. I'll tell you, they're going nuts and they've been going nuts all season long and it's justified. They're doing really well. And, you know, it's great to see the interest. And for, for us, it's until the bills are done, they don't even know the Sabres are playing. So we've got a couple more weeks here, hopefully that we can, uh, you know, kind of go under the radar and then be ready to go once the bills are done. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. And you know what it is? My son's at the age now where he likes football. He's into trading cards and all that. So he knows all the players. So you sit and watch the games and he's telling me all about this guy. This guy did this. This guy's got that. (laughs) And it's amazing. And I think it's, it's fantastic. It was kind of a, 
the trading card was an avenue to gain interest in the game and and i think it's awesome yeah that's great i uh i think that's great too my sons are so old that they tell me what to do they don't even talk about trading <laughs> cards or anything anymore they're well, 36 or 32 and she pretty much runs my show there's two people in this world i'm afraid of my daughter and my sister the only two <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> well, I've got a 30-year-old and a 27-year-old, so I'm, I'm right in that uh, boat a little above you guys. So they're running my life, too. So, uh, Rob, I want to say the Sabres have been, to say the least, have been through a rough stretch the last several years. What have, do the fans have to look forward to in the future with this club, in your opinion? Uh, they got a lot. You know, I think this is the first time that they've actually done it right. You know, they get rid of all the high-priced yeah. help. They cleared it all out. They brought in the young kids. They've surrounded them with some good veteran players. And not only good players on the ice, good guys off the ice to teach them the right and the wrong and how to prepare and how to practice and all that kind of thing. So they're doing a good job of that. They're patient this time. Kevin Adams, I think, has done a really good job of, you know, kind of just picking guys that fit into the design that they want to play. Donnie Granado's done a fantastic job communicating with these guys. They all love this guy, and he has a way of just getting his point across to them in a way that they can understand it and turn, go out, and execute. It's not always perfect every night, but, you know, I think the big thing is they're they're competing every night. They may lose, but you know they're going to work from start to finish. And they may have up and downs, but for the most part, uh, you see a very good effort, and we haven't seen that in a long time. You know, for a long time there, it was yeah. just, they'd hit a point in the game and it'd shut it off and it'd be over with and you wouldn't know what you're going to get for the rest of the game. But, you know, right now they've a couple trades. They've got in some good young kids. You got Quinn playing really well in Roch. Krebs came in and he's doing really well. He's up here playing right now. Tate Thompson's made a huge transition to center this year. You had Darlene starting to mature into that player that uh, you'd expect him to be. Uh, Uka Pekka Lukanen, when he's played, he's played really well. So, there's a lot on this team right now that fans could look at and go, okay, this future looks pretty bright. And that brightness hasn't been there in a while because they're always kind of chasing it in the past. You know, get rid of a young guy to bring in an older guy thinking it was going to be enough to put you over to get into the playoffs. And I think right now they're not even, they're not even looking at the playoff picture. They're looking at development. And mm -hmm. I don't think you would have even seen a lot of these kids this year playing up here if it wasn't COVID and all the injuries we've had to deal with because their idea was leave these kids in Roch, let them grow together, let them learn how to play the game properly, and then when they're ready, bring them in. Don't force them into a situation they aren't ready for. And uh, so it's still been good. They get in a couple games here and there, and then they get back down and, and uh, you know, keep working on what they have to do. But I'll tell you what, it's, it's, it's so much more exciting this year than it has been in the past uh, – that, you know, people are catching on. People are realizing what they're doing is is hopefully the right thing. Yeah, I think uh, I, I would have to agree with you on that, Robbie. And, and uh, like my son plays in Cincinnati, which is a ECHL affiliate. So they've been kind of they, – they've lost a lot of players because of the pandemic and the taxi squad and all that. But I, I've watched a few of the Sabres games in, in, in Rochester as well. They got some good young talent. I mean, you look at, you mentioned a lot of them already, but uh, Sage Thompson's another guy. Uh, the guys they got from Vegas are, are pretty good players. 
But I, I think they're, you're right. They're doing it the right way. Kevin Adams is being patient, and development is a key to being successful down the road. And I, I, I like the fact that they're doing that. They're not pushing these guys in or moving them for older guys, thinking that that's going to get them to the playoffs. Well, I, you know, and getting I, I, to the playoffs is nice, and it's good experience for them to get there when they get there. But you want to make sure they're ready when they get there. You just don't want yeah. to sell the farm to try to just to get into the playoffs and, you know, survive around maybe and, and be done. I think what they are now is looking long-term. And, you know, I think yeah. going into every game, yeah, you're looking to win hockey games. But in the big picture, you're putting these kids in situations for them to develop and get that experience and kind of grow together. Um, you know, that never happened in the past. So, uh, you know, these guys, do they have pressure on them? Yeah, they got pressure on them to perform. But I think they've really done a good job of getting the point across to them here that, hey, don't ride the roller coaster. If we have a bad game, throw it out the window. We'll get back to work the next day and we'll see what happens the next night. And I think the way Donnie Granado's done it has taken an awful lot of pressure off a lot of guys where they can just go out and play. And, you know, there's nights so you're getting beat up pretty good and you're not seeing heads hanging. You're not seeing a lack of effort. You're not seeing guys just kind of throw it in. They're, they're just continuing to work. They just keep doing their thing. And, you know, I think that's the most important thing moving down the road that these guys are learning to do it the right way. Kyle Post has done a fantastic job. Alex Tuck coming in when in the baggage trade has been super, super for this group of kids. And, you know, Mark Pezik on the back end brought him back after being here years ago. They've all put their finger into developing this group of guys and Zambus Gergensons and not guys that you think are big names in the NHL, but they understand what the role is now. And they're at the point in their career where not just hang on, but their willingness to do it, I think is the big thing. And I think that comes down to the message that coach and general manager and ownership's given to them that, you know, this is, this is where we're at. This is what we want to do. And, and uh, we want you to be a part of it. You got to explain to me, what the problem has been in the last two years with goalies. They've gone through six goalies already this year. Michael Hauser, who started in Cincinnati, won his game last night. Last year, he, he got to the NHL again, won his first game. Um, like, I, I don't know. I don't know what – you don't see that going on in any other organizations where they're going through that many goalies. Is it COVID or is it injuries? No, it's all injury. Um, I think Tukarski is the only one out right now with COVID and he's over COVID, but he's just having symptoms that he can't get himself back into the condition he needs to be in. Um, hey, I look at it, it's good that I remember the day when you played, I played goaltenders that played 60, 70 games a year and, you know, they yeah. lean on them. <laughs> I look at it sometimes that it's not the same type of guy anymore because they don't even allow them to play back to back in most cases anymore. Um, yeah. I'm not saying it, it, it gets up. No, I'm not saying that. Uh, I think when a lot of the nights you're facing a ton of shots, there's an awful lot of traffic. Every team that we play now, it just seems like they're just banged to the net. There's always a big fight in front of the net all the time for the puck. There's So there's a lot of traffic there, and these guys are getting dung up that way in, in most cases. And, you know, Luka Pekka to get hurt after, you know, facing 40 shots three or four nights in a row. So things like that kind of add to it. I think it's just a lot of bad luck. Two years in a row now, we've used six different goaltenders. Yeah. Heck, we're only halfway through this year. 
And, you know, Ukapek looking is going to be a while. Sue Ben's out with a shoulder still. Like I said, Tukarski, not sure, um, you know, how long he's going to be. Uh, Aaron Dell hurt the other night. It's So it's, it's just endless. But the good thing is when these guys have come in in the last two years, they played well. Yeah, they played well. And, and like, yeah. last night, he played out of his mind, Hauser. And he, he, he won that hockey game for him. That could have been 4 nothing in the first period last night for Ottawa, but he did a job and for whatever reason, they can keep these guys rolling. And even Aaron Dell had a tough time at the beginning and then he got himself in a groove and then got hurt. So they've got good production out of them when they've come in and played. And, and I, that's the amazing part, how well, deep they are yeah. in the depth well, chart and they're still stepping in and making a difference. So yeah. Rob, in your opinion, why didn't the Jack Eichel situation work out overall? Well, I think it just came down to, you know, Jack, you know, having the issue that he had and and the two sides couldn't decide and, and agree on what needed to happen. And, you know, you know, it gets into those situations. Sometimes it starts getting personal one way or another, and it gets to a point where you might not find that common ground ever. And even if you do, it's still always going to hang there. And I think the, the Sabres realized mm -hmm. that, what was going on with Jack, where they were in, in the, in their building and, and the, the direction they wanted to take. Hey, it might be the best thing. You move them, you get some players in, uh, you know, it, it, in big picture too, it takes $10 million off your cap. Um, you know, allows Jack to go get done what he wants to get done, move to a, a good team. And in turn, we have, uh, you know, a couple of young kids coming in and financially it's, it's a better situation for your team. So, I I think it, it just came down to a personal thing when they got it to a yeah. point where there was no coming back from it. And the best thing from it was just move on from it. And I think it took a lot of pressure off the guys too, because it was hanging over their heads all summer, the beginning of training camp. And you almost saw this team when it, when the deal happened, it was like, oh, you know, they yeah. were able to breathe again. They could move on and just concentrate on what, what, what they had to do. So, Hey, Jack's a hell of a player and he's going to do well, you know, in his career. And, you know, you're going to look some nights when he's putting numbers up and, you know, sitting, why did we do it? But I think, uh, you know, in the big picture in the long run, uh, you know, after getting rid of Sammy Reinhardt and guys like that, Ristolainen, it was start fresh. And the only way to start fresh was, uh, you know, moving them. Yeah. Well, where I was going to go with that was the direction I really wanted to take that was almost unlike David Mc Connor McDavid. You see what he's going right through now in Ottawa. I know it's had a very minor success in the playoffs a number of years ago. They got through two rounds, and they've actually regressed since that point. Would it almost be fair if we could be in fantasy land and think players of those natures, and these are both exceptional players and generational-type players, that if they came in in a situation for Buffalo now, things might be different? Because if you take a look at a team like Chicago when they won, Duncan Keith, Brent Seabrook, Corey Crawford, uh, Dustin Bufflin, we're all drafted between 2001, 2004. Patrick King came along right. in 2007. Uh, Jonathan Tage, 2008, they won in 10. You know, Pittsburgh, Crosby came in 05, but within a year, he had Latang, he had uh, Malkin, he had Jordan Stahl coming at him, and then he also had Marc-Andre Fleury in goal. I mean, even in Toronto, Austin Matthews arrives in 16, but Marner and Nineander already there, and Riley, and they had traded for... Uh, Frederick Anderson, the same summer Matthews was drafted, whereas when Ico came in, all of a sudden, you know, there's this growth period, and you can see the same sort of scenario going with McDavid right now. So, 
In a perfect world, it'd almost be that those kids came in today. It would elevate those teams to a higher level. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, in Jack's case, he came in and, and people expected him to save the world. Exactly. And, you know, carry the load of this hockey team and, you know, get it to where we needed to be, promised land and everything. And that was a lot on a young guy. And, you know, Jack was a great player, but he didn't have a supporting cast to help him out. And, you know, the emergence of Sammy Reinhardt playing well with him. And, you know, you get Skinner thinking maybe he could play with him. And then that didn't work out that I think he felt a tremendous amount of pressure. And then you make him a captain as a young player that, you know, I, I love Jack Eichel as a player, but I, I think Jack is going to excel as a player when he's not, a number one guy on the team and he's got to carry the load. He, he can, he can play with anybody and, and excel. But in our case, he had no supporting staff and, you know, you're weak in D goaltending was suspect. And there was a lot of things with, along with, you know, multiple coaching changes, multiple general manager changes that a player like Jack, I can understand it where they got a time to perform. They got a time to, to win and, and I just think that in his mind, too, he's looking at the direction the team was going and it was going to be a few more years down the road. And, you know, did he feel he had enough time to do that? Squid? Yeah, I think I think that's pretty fair. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you think of these young kids at 18 years old coming into the National Hockey League and so much is expected of them. And, I mean, that, that is a lot of pressure to carry as an 18-year-old kid coming in, uh, knowing that they're counting on you to take this team to the promised land, so to speak. And, you know, but you don't have any help around you. I mean, that's got to be a, uh, unbelievable pressure. Yeah, I was, I've was. never been in that situation. But I'm like, you know, just you know, just the way the fans react and, and the way – you know, the team kind of sets you out there, the way the league, you know, builds you up, then expectations are going through the roof. And you know what, back when you played, how many 18-year-old kids stepped into the game or 19, you know, very few, one, maybe one or two a season might get a shot at it. And they allowed those kids to kind of gel and grow in the minors and, and come up when they're ready to go. It didn't matter how good they were. So I know the game is younger. There's a lot of younger kids in the game and kids are stepping in you know, after being drafted in the first round, the majority of them are stepping into lineups now. But you, you got to remember, too, they're still kids. They're still mature yeah. level is not always there that you need to be to deal with media every day and the pressure of playing and performing and everyday life. It's it's hard sometimes. And some guys can handle it. Some guys don't. And I think that's where it comes down to the support staff that you put around these guys is so important. Because if you don't have it there early, then they could go in a direction that you might not ever get them back. Well, then you couple that with a big contract on top of it and just adds to the pressure even more so for a young kid like that. Yeah, sometimes I don't understand how kids want to go out. And I know it's all about the money and they want to make the big contract. And I think it's a status symbol for them and all that. But And and then the other hand, they all want to go out and be the best player and be compared to the best in the game. But sometimes it's better off just to pull pull the reins back a little bit here and take that extra year or two before you kind of jump into that. Because as you know, that as soon as you mm-hmm. sign those deals, man, that pressure, whatever you had before, it's going to be magnified by 10 because everybody's going to look at it, all the fan out there, and they, they might not understand in depth of, you know, everything you got to deal with and go through. 
that, no, you're getting it paid. You better put those numbers up and, and carry the load. So that's that's tough. I would like to experience it once just to see how tough it was, just getting a big contact. But I always got the deal, whatever was left. Uh, you know, well, I always got the call. They always say, yeah, we want you back next year, but we got to sign all these guys. And then you get the call in about August when it was too late to go somewhere else. And they'd say, hey, we had to overpay this guy. We had to pay this guy. And this is what we got left. Will you come back? And I'm what am I going to say? No, sure. Yeah, no problem. Whatever. So, hey, well, uh, I think that external pressure of, of having to perform. One of the biggest reasons for that, too, though, is is the way the league is now. Uh, the the PA has so much, and the players have so much more power now than we had none back in the 80s and nine, early 90s until things started to change and there was salary disclosure i mean free agency was 32 years old when i was playing i mean how many guys made it to 32 and anybody wanted to sign them after that there was very very few and we didn't know what anybody in the league was making so i mean when you have salary disclosure it makes it so much easier you just compare yourself your agent does to all the guys that are in the same category as you and then that's what you're going to make and nobody ever complained about it. It was just like, yeah, let's go. You know, I can remember with the yeah. Knoxes here. The Knoxes, they, they were always involved in, in signing when they were around and invite you over to the country club and you'd golf for the day and they'd give you mm-hmm. a sob story for 18 <laughs> holes. And by the end, they'd give you a $5,000 raise and you'd go home excited and that would be the end of it. So I think it's great now because the guys are finally getting their just worth. And I love it yeah. when guys get paid, you know, and, and are rewarded for what they do. And I just hope that they look back and, and which I don't know if they do to think about all the guys that were locked out guys that were on strike and, and to fight for this type of thing, to put them in the situation mm-hmm. they're in, to be allowed to, to get what they get. And, you know, sometimes I look at it and I know there's some guys out there that just, they don't care what happened in the past and they just think they deserve it. And that's part sometimes frustrates me a little bit, but uh, they need to sit back and, and really thank for what guys went through in the past to, to get them where they are and build the game. Well, on that. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. And it's funny because there's a lot of guys, well, this guy happened to be older than me and I won't mention who it was, but it was a former player. And he said to me one day, he said, how in the hell can they pay that Connor McDavid $12.5 million? And I said, well, I said, let me explain it to you like this. Probably a third of the teams in the league have six to 8,000 empty seats every game, with the exceptions of the games where McDavid or Veskin or Crosby or Matthews or someone like that is playing in their building. And I said, how many Connor McDavid sweaters have they sold, you know, over time? I said, he, and, and not only that, I said, he might be the best player in the league for sure, top three. So I said, he deserves it. And I'm glad. I, I, I can't say how happy I am that the players finally have the power that they have now and, and are getting paid what they should be getting paid. And, you know, the big thing, too, financially, they're being rewarded, too. And what better is now is the medical side of it, too. You know, because in the past, there was guys that were beat up so bad, the medical attention that was received was not good. And now 
I sometimes you get frustrated with it, but you can understand it and respect it. When guys have issues now, they speak up and they're they don't yeah. play when there's something wrong with them. You know, think how many times you're forced to play, you know, because there was something wrong with you, and they're like, No, no, we're on the road, we're short, you gotta play, you gotta play. <coughs> So now that doesn't happen, and that, that's the part, too, that uh, probably more than the kids getting paid their just worth now, I'm probably more proud as an ex-player and having to go through a lot of that to know that they're getting that medical attention now that they deserve and should get. And hopefully yeah. down the road, yeah. they don't have to deal with a lot of things that guys did uh, from the past. Well, Rob, uh, let, let's... I have let's... to agree with you. Let's see how you got to that stage. Uh, where uh, let, let, let's so let's go back to life back in Sterling, Ontario, playing for the local team. You eventually moved up to the Tier Two Whippy uh, Club, and then on to uh, Cornwall. So why don't you take us through that? I hope period of your life to get your hockey career started. Uh, it was great. You know, small town. We had like twelve hundred people in Sterling at the time. We were double C. You know, you played every other little small town around you, and. And uh, it was it was an amazing thing, you know. In in our area, when you got to the playoffs, it didn't matter if you were a novice, Adam, or all the way up to juvenile. When the playoffs started, the the building was full of people, and it was because it was the thing to do. It was the night out, and you know, all the parents up there smoking and drinking in the stands. And but it was, you know, it was just the thing to do. So it was it was so exciting, and the atmosphere was always so good when you when you played. Um, yeah, I got to a point. We went to the Ontario Finals when I was a uh, major Bantam. Uh, that summer, I got invited to go to Trenton Bobcats Junior B. I ended up making the team, played there one year. Went to Whitby the next year, Tier 2, made that team. Um, that team was – it was a tough year. I think we won like nine games all season long. And Ooh. we were a bunch of kids playing against men in, in Tier 2 there, and we got our butts kicked all the time. We won nine games that year. We had three kids off that team make it to the NHL. It was me, uh, Teppel Newmanen, and Jan Yannon. We all played together that year in Whitby, and three of us made it to the NHL from that. From there, got drafted to Cornwall. It was the greatest time, you know, getting down there, playing in the OHL. It was fantastic. It was a great city to play in, great people. And, you know, I finished my third year junior, and I hadn't been drafted. Um I got drafted that summer in the fifth round here to Buffalo. It was kind of like, hey, this is kind of a topping on the cake. Go there for a training camp and a good way to end my hockey career. Fortunately, I got sent to Roch and signed a contract. And, you know, from that point on, a year later, I was, I was playing in, in Buffalo. So it was it was, uh, it was was amazing because I was the first kid kind of from our area. So yep. the support you got was fantastic. And everybody was behind you and – the great thing is everywhere I've played, I've been close to home, whether it was Cornwall, people always down here. It was like, you know, they were always able to be a part of it. And I thought it was great. So, you know, for me, I had the, a dream career. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with having people from home being able to be a part of it. If you were out West or something, you know, you never would have had that chance, but I was, I was always surrounded by people that uh, were supportive and, you know, it was great just kind of give back to them. Well, I was going to ask you, you, um, you know, the 318 penalty minutes, in Britain, <clears throat> you weren't certainly a kid fighting against men. You were certainly holding your own at some point, you know, mass and those type of numbers. So you were certainly let them know who you were. Did you make a conscious decision that to be an aggressive player is how you were going to make it or did it just sort of unfold in front of you as you went along? No, I think when I made the step to Junior B, my first night at training camp for Junior B, 
some guy dropped the gloves with me and I didn't know what he was doing. And so you start, I guess that was the thing to do. <laughs> and I don't know, even know what happened. And the guy picked me up from like the back of the neck and the back of my pants and like threw me head first into the boards. And now I can still see the guy and I still see him sometimes when I go back home and he's the little scrawniest, little skinniest piece of crap ever. And I look at him, I just shake my head and laugh. And I'm like, how do but that was kind of, you, because you were younger and, and not as big as those guys, you always had to fight your way through. And I think in, in tier two, it was men. Like it wasn't a, you know, I was a 16 year old kid then. And these guys were all uh, overage junior players that, a really in Aurora and all these teams, Richmond Hill, they always had, you know, they had these guys that they were playing there to win. That was the end of their junior careers. And they were, you know, they were, they played hard and you had to learn to play tough or you wouldn't survive. And then when he went to, to OHL, it was, it just seemed like everybody, that was just the game you played. And, and I was not a fighter by any means, um, you know, defensive player scored a few goals here and there, but that, that change in your game came when I get, went to Rochester. John Van Boxmeer was the coach then. And shortly after, when I got sent to Roch, he took me aside and said, hey, look, Buffalo is looking for this. This is what they want you to do. And I'm here to see if you think you're willing to do it or capable of doing it. And it took me about two seconds, and I'm like, show me how. And, you know, because you would have done anything you had to do to, to get to the NHL. And that year, I think I had 446 minutes in penalties. I had 46 fighting majors or something like that. I got my ass kicked 43 of the 46 fights I got in. But you kind of learned the craft. And you just kind of – and Boxy was good with it. Boxy was not a fighter by any means. But he, he really did a good job of teaching you when to, when not to, uh, using it as momentum, all that kind of thing. So he taught me a ton. Uh, to prepare me for when I, you know, took the next step uh, to Buffalo. And, you know, from that point on, it was Rick Dudley was a coach then, and he was awesome because he had played a hard game too. And, you know, he took from what Boxy taught me to the next level. And, you know, he taught you to survive. And I think a lot of guys go into the game and, and I, I trust me, I didn't want to have to play that way, but it was kind of to get there, that's what you had to do. And then once you got there, you just – if you didn't keep it up, you wouldn't have been around. And I think that's the big thing with a lot of guys that had to play that role. A lot of guys couldn't keep it up and keep doing it and be successful with it. You know, they always started to think there was something else at one point. And, you know, for me, John Muckler was the one that kind of said, he'd always kind of have a way of grounding you. And, you know, you would think, okay, I got this going. I got a couple goals in the last few games I'm going to play. And he'd always be taking you aside. And saying, you know, don't forget, don't forget. That's not what you're here for. Don't forget, you know, it's to play this game. So, you know, I got good direction along the way. And, you know, hopefully I can look at myself and think I was smart enough as a young enough guy to understand it and, and respect the op, uh, the opportunity I was getting. And, you know, it, you know, years later, you're done. And it's like, yeah, you look back and go, would you change anything? And it'd be absolutely not. Because I might not ever have had the opportunity to play if, uh, you know, you didn't take that suggestion and that advice, uh, you know, back when you were in Rutch. Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of Rick Dudley, I mean, I, I thought he was a great coach. I I got to play for him. I think I think you were there, The were you there his first year? Yeah. I believe you, I believe you were, yeah. And that year, I think we finished second or third overall in the entire league. 
Uh, Rick, Rick did a great job, I thought. And then, of course, things got sour when Muckler came in and he was going to take over for Jerry Meehan uh, the following year. And then he fired Duds, I think, 20 games into the season or something. And then he took over. And that wasn't the best thing for me. I ended up in the press box for three and a half months. But anyway, it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying John Muckler wasn't a good coach or a good teacher. He certainly was. Obviously, he's got, you know, great things that he's done as a coach in the National Hockey League. But for me, it wasn't the right fit at the time. But you know what? Hey, I went to Rochester at the deadline and we made it to the semifinals. I had a blast down there. It was a great place to play. Uh, I, I know what you're talking about when you said it was a, a great place to play. Uh, the fans were great in Rochester. I loved it. Yeah, I remember John Mucker coming in the first night uh, after he took over as coach. And he literally walks in the room and he says, hey, I treat superstars like superstars. The rest of you just be happy you're here. And we're kind of looking around going, I ain't a superstar, so I better shut my mouth here and just be kind of go along with it. But uh, I ended up having a great relationship with John Mockler down the road. And, you know, he ended up bringing me to Ottawa at the end, uh, you know, because, you know, more for helping guys, Chris Neal and those guys off the ice than, than on the ice. So, yeah, I, I ended up uh, having a great relationship with him. It was a lot of fun. I learned an awful lot from him. But I'll tell you, I look back, uh, Rick, and I look at Rick Dudley as one of the most intelligent hockey people that I think I've met along the way because he just looks at the game a different way. He's able to understand players. He mm -hmm. communicated really well. And uh, he and he pushed guys. Like, you're in the weight room working out, and he's out there. If you're lifting 100 pounds, he's lifting 200, you know, trying to yes. show you up going, if I can do it, why can't you do it type thing? So, yeah, he was he was a great motivator, and he was he was a good man to kind of teach you what it's all about. Well, I, I, the funny thing about Duds, though, was he had that temper. And I remember that game, uh, I believe we were playing in L.A., and we were up by like three or four goals. And uh, you remember how we used to always give it to the linesmen and the referees. Every time they skated by the bench, he'd be yapping at them all the time. Ron Asseltine was the linesman. He's at our right in front of our bench at the blue line. L.A. comes in about three feet offside. He goes like this. They score a goal, and Duds goes nuts. He rips his papers in half. He starts banging on the glass. The fans are scattering. They're getting out of there. I thought, oh, holy cow. Oh, he <laughs> like, was, that's pretty crazy. But yeah, I remember one night on the plane coming home from somewhere, and we didn't buy very nice planes. And he ripped the back seat right out of the plane. We thought the back end of the plane had fallen <laughs> off, and it was Duds ripping the seat out, throwing it in the back. But uh, – Hey, you know what? He he had passion, and and he and, you know he yeah. took things serious, and I and I totally appreciate you know what he brought to the game and the way he coached and the way he you know took the time to to, to help each guy. You know he cared for the guys. Yeah. He cared what you know how each individual guy did. It wasn't all about you know winning and losing. He was he wanted guys to get better, and he wanted to pass on what he knew to them. Well, I think with your uh, the start of your career, Rob, uh, the split season with uh, you know with Rochester and Buffalo, people could probably win a beer on this one quite often if they would ask your first highlight as a saber, what it would be. Now, coming with four hundred forty six penny minutes coming into Rochester and like averaging almost three hundred a year, you would suggest it to be a fight, but it happened to be your first goal on your first shift and on your first shot. 
Yeah, I had I got called up. We played the night before in Roch and 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 Boxy called me in and said, Hey, you're going to Pittsburgh. You're playing tomorrow night. I'm like, shut up, you know, like not believing it. Finally convinced me that it was true. And I flew out the next morning to to meet the team in Pittsburgh and I was the most nervous person in the world. And I can remember going out for warm-up. And in warm-up, I'm looking around, and I ran into Dean Kennedy. And you remember how big and strong Dean was. And he looks at me, he's like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be here type thing. And he didn't play me early, and all of a sudden, he gave me the shift. And I I got out. I was playing left wing. And I remember it, it was uh, Scotty O'Neill, and, and uh, he hit me with a pass going down the wing. And I took a slap shot, and I had zero slap shot. I sucked at a slap shot. And it goes five hole on Tom Brasso. And he didn't know it went in. I didn't know it went in. And finally it was like, it went in. And I'm like, oh my God. And I think that night I was, a, I had a goal and assist plus three. And statistically wise, it was the best game I ever had in the NHL. And it was like, I'm like <laughs> fighting this. I ain't fighting nothing. And, you know, it was like, woo, you know, the next day, Dougie Bodger's carrying you to the bus because they took you out all night. And it was it was just the greatest experience ever. And at that point, it was like, if they sent me back to Ross right now, I'm the happiest guy in the world. I wouldn't care if I ever got another call up because, you know, you kind of did it and you were there. And it was uh, it was amazing. And, and luckily for me, too, my last shift in hockey, in pro, in NHL, exactly. I scored as well in, yeah. in Toronto. And Jacques Martin, I was in Ottawa, and Jacques Martin did not like me one bit. For when I went to Ottawa the first time, he, he calls me in the office and he says to me, he goes, hey, I just want to let you know that uh, you're not here because I wanted you here. You're here because John Muckler wanted you here. And I'm like, you know, I'm 35, 36 at the time. So, it, you know, normally that might have crushed somebody. And I'm like, all right, Jack, no problem. No problem, man. It's like, you know, and just kind of walked out of his office. And I scored that night in Toronto and I came back to the bench and I never moved as inch the rest of the time and he would never dress me and um he just that was just him and i that was just the relationship we had he for whatever reason he didn't like me and and we, there was like three four games left in the year two that year and they meant nothing and he refused to dress me it was the last practice uh, of the last regular season game before playoffs and you know Jacques always called everybody into the circle and the guys were always very intimidated to Jacques. and i i said hey Jacques, before you start he goes Yes, Rob Ray. He always called you Rob Ray. And he always made you play D in practice. Shane Nettie and I played D together all the time. And I go, Jacques, I'm telling you, if you put me in the lineup tonight, I promise, I promise you I will not score. And he looked at me and he turned red and he goes, you're not playing. And he goes, practice is over. And he freaked out and he took off the ice and away he went. And that was it. So, I don't know. Well, those are, you know, Rob, that's exactly what we were talking about earlier is that, you know, coaches back in that those days, they could just say, I don't like this guy and sit you in the press box for months and collecting mothballs yep. up there. Whereas, like I said, the players now, they have power. And I, I love it. I, I think it's great because if you're not getting treated properly in one place, you can easily ask for a trade. Your aging get involved, and you will get moved eventually. So I, I think it's great the way the game has evolved and uh, the way that the power that the players have. I, I think it's fabulous. Think of how many guys over the years, Rick, that, that got buried in the minors because somebody didn't like oh. them. 
and they were fantastic oh. players, and they could play on, you know, majority of the teams in the NHL and be highly productive. But they, the, somebody didn't like them, and they just get buried because you know they didn't move guys like that all the time. You just kind of sent them away, and it was kind of like, yeah, I get in the last laugh. And there were so many guys just rotted in the minors because hundreds, of it. hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of guys never got a shot in the NHL that were like the best players in the American hockey league back in those days. Yep. Nowadays, you know, you go there, if you're one of the best players, you're going to get a chance in the national hockey league. There's no question. And that's the way it should be because, you know, there's so many yeah. guys there that can help other organizations. And I don't know what is in the past, kind of an old man's club. You don't touch mine. I don't touch yours type thing. And, you know, go from there. So, that's why when you do get the chance, you you know, for most guys, you just sit there, keep your mouth shut, and do whatever you're told, just you know, so you don't become one of those statistics. When you think about the Montreal Canadiens in the '70s, Halifax, their their farm team in the American Hockey League, they had probably eight to ten guys that could have played on half the NHL teams in, in the NHL at that point. Uh, after the expansion in 67 and again in 72, I think it was. But they couldn't move. Nope. They couldn't get out of there because Montreal owned them and they weren't going to give them up. And, uh, you know, that doesn't happen nowadays. If you're that good, you're either going to get called up to your parent club that you're with or you're going to get graded. Yep. And uh, I, I think it's great. Well, Robbie, I want to go to uh... – Little Buffalo, the small town, certainly had some rivalries uh, throughout uh, those years. You guys had some really good teams. Uh, Squid, you're on a couple of those good teams too. But some of these rivalries with Quebec, Montreal, Toronto, Boston, like speak to that over the years. And maybe even leading up to 1992, that incident with the fan who stupidly jumped on the ice and uh, certainly paid for it. <laughs> Squid, you weren't there for that game. Are you in the press box? No, I was probably in the press box. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to talk about some of the rivalries you guys had with uh, Quebec, Montreal, Toronto, Boston. For a small town, you guys certainly were the scorn of a lot of those teams and had some real battles, including the one with that rambunctious fan the one night in Quebec. Oh, uh, yeah, that Quebec thing was a that was a strange situation. There was a five on five <laughs> fight out on the ice. And uh, Herb Lagan had ran over Clint Malarchuk, so they're going at it. And we're sitting there, and we're, we're kind of watching what's going on in the ice. And then we notice this guy climb up behind on the glass. And I remember John Mucker going, I'll get him. And he grabbed – I got a picture of him holding Kenny Sutton's stick, trying to poke the guy back. The guy jumps into the bench. We grab on him, throw him on the ice. He jumps right out off the <laughs> ice, comes running right back at where I was again. And I had him by the hair, head on the boards. I think I hit him 18 times before the cops came out and they started jumping on him and pulling him down. And, you know, when I was done, I had a ball of hair in my hand. The cops are getting the guy off the ice. There's bullets laying all over the ice because they had fallen out of the guy's quick loader or something. And they're out there picking bullets up off the ice. And you look down at the Quebec bench and they're just kind of looking at you with your jaw hanging going, what the hell is going on over there? And it was, it was amazing. And come to find out, they did an interview with the guy, you, you know, time down the road. And he was like, I was protesting the violence in sports. And I'm like, you <laughs> dumbass, like, do something different. I don't know what you did. But, you know, the funniest thing was, we're, 
one time I said to Gordy Donnelly, I said, is that the craziest thing you ever saw? And he goes, no. He said, same building. He said, I was playing there one time and somebody had brought in piglets in a, in a, in a, in a sack and threw them over the boards at one time. The pigs are running all over the ice and they're crapping all over. And he goes, that's the craziest thing I ever saw. So, but yeah, we had some good ones. Like with Boston here, Boston was the, the nemesis of Buffalo for the longest time. Uh, you know, until Mayday's Gill actually, you know, beating him in the in the first round, that uh, it kind of you know broke a jinx for for this team and organization, and and you know from then on it's been pretty good. But I'll tell you what, when you were playing those teams like Hartford and Montreal and, and Boston, you know, it seemed like ten times a year the hatred for them was off the charts, and the fans as well. And uh, I'll tell you, when the Bruins, like Bruce Shoebottom and all those guys with the Bruins, when they'd come in, when I first got here, it was like, I wasn't ready for that. And I didn't know what to expect and all this. But, you know, the people didn't even care about the game. They were just like, you know, they were waiting for something to happen. But, you know, I, but that's when it was great. It was like the, the fan interest was so in it. They hated every player on the other teams. They knew all the players. And, you know, now you, you you play a team a couple times a year. It's kind of hard to get that hatred unless you get into a playoff scenario that you know may happen multiple times. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty crazy time there. That you know the people just still talk about it. They still talk about when like O'Reilly and and that going through the boards and they're showing you fighting in the Zamboni way and you know that kind of stuff just never leaves these people and they they just thrive on it and they love it and. You know, now with Toronto coming in, it's, you know, for us, it was great because at the beginning, you'd play them twice a year, once, maybe twice, and, and that was it. So you had that one game a year that you could do. But then when they moved our side, it was like, that's the best thing that ever could have happened because, you know, that, that fire was there and people in the stands and, you know, being close enough that there's so many of the, the Leaf fans and our fans, it seemed like it was 50-50 at times and you just went at it and uh, on and off the ice. So. You know, it's it's tough to explain to some guys now, and I think people still try to go. There's a Toronto Buffalo rivalry and all that. And I'm like, not even close. This is nothing. This is you're playing <laughs> four or five times a year, but that's not that's not a rivalry. That's because you have to play them around the schedule. Before it was like you plan for weeks for it, and nobody cared about anything other than you know how crazy it was going to get. Now, did you and Ty Domi uh, have a running feud? Because it seemed like every time you two played, you two both had each other on the dance card for some reason. I think we fought 13 times in the NHL. <laughs> I played against Ty. He was in Peterborough. I was in Cornwall. Uh, the, the one year I was in the minors, he, I played against him there as well. And it, it just seemed to happen all the time. And I respect the heck out of Ty because he was a gamer. I was a gamer. We both knew what our jobs were, and, and we both know that you know, at times when, you know, he needed to give his team a boost, then I'd be a willing combatant. And the other way he'd oblige too, if I, you know, was in a situation that I'd tried to get something going, he'd always oblige. And yeah, it was awesome. And, and you know what, there was times when we'd play Toronto and, you know, you get bombarded in the morning going, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? If it didn't happen in the game, they were asking you why it didn't happen. But, you know, for Ty and I, we got drafted at the same time. We had the same agent at the same time. Uh, Roly Thompson. I can remember getting picked up to go to the draft. It was Roly driving. Danny Dow was in the front seat. Ty was in the back seat. They come to my house. I jump in the back all excited and I look over and there's Ty. And it's about a three hour drive from my house to Montreal. Ty never shut up the whole time. And I just sat there and I'm just looking at him going, when am I going to hit him? 
And and it was like, and we ended up rooming together. We got in a little scuffle in the room. And, you know, the next day we both get drafted. We had a great time. And, you know, they dropped me off back home the, the next following the draft. And it was like, see you later. And the next time we saw each other, you're, he's, I think the first fight we had in the NHL was when he was with Winnipeg. And uh, from that point on, we just went at it. But do we ever hate each other? I don't think we ever hated each other. We knew that we had a role and tried to do it as good as possible and entertain along the way. And, you know, we've got to a point now where I've been around Ty quite a bit and, you know, he's fun to be around and he's, he's, he's a, he's a good guy and I enjoy being around him. And uh, yeah, it's just, it, it, I think you had to be that way when you did it all the time, you had to kind of have a half, a little bit of a hate for each other, but you still respected each other. And I know we sat down at, I don't know, like three years ago now, and we were on the ice surface at the rink and they dropped the jumbotron down and uh, Andrew Peters kind of narrated it. And we played all 13 fights we had in the NHL, him and I play a fight. We talk about it, play the next one. We talk about it. And uh, it was awesome. It was, it was, it was a great, great thing. And uh, actually you ended up winning an Emmy for it actually to uh, for the production we did. So it was cool. And I'm glad I got a chance to know him because, you know, just to have a chance to talk about what he had to deal with, what I had to deal with along the way, playing a similar role that uh, you gain a ton of respect. And I'll tell you what, uh, you know, I talk to him periodically now and, you know, it's great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you've kind of uh, got a chance to know somebody else and, and see what they're really like and not have to hate them. You know, I've gone through the NHL and I, I, I can't count how many guys that I've gone up to since I was done playing. And it's like, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry for something I said, something I did or whatever along the way. I'm sorry. And uh, it's a good feeling to be able to say it. And then you don't have to worry about it. I can remember the first time walking into an airport, the airport in Toronto when we were going out east for an alumni thing. And Shane Corson and Darcy Tucker were sitting together. And I'm like, uh-oh, this is not good. So I, I got enough courage up and I sacked up and I walked over and I said to both of them, I said, hey, I just want to apologize right now for anything I said or did over the years. And I, you know, I just want to come out and say that the two of them were awesome too. It was like 10 minutes later, you're laughing your ass off telling stories and, and uh, it was great, but there's still only one guy out there that I haven't had the chance to apologize to, but he just doesn't want it yet. So maybe when he gets a little older. <laughs> <laughs> so let, I want to go back to the old odd. And I remember as a player going into the yacht, it was a difficult place to play. Uh, then when I got there, but I always wondered why that puck, when it was shot in on the right side, would always ricochet out into the, into the high slot. And then, of course, when I get traded there, I realized that Porky, the assistant equipment guy or whatever he was, would put his foot on the door and push it out so the puck would hit and go right out into the slot. And I got to tell you, I, I think about three times it happened where I knew exactly where to go and knew that Porky was going to be there and the puck ended up on my stick. Next thing you know, it's in the net. And that, that was unbelievable. But as an opposing player, it pissed us off all the time. Oh, it did. And you always seen guys get mad, yelling at the refs, you know, they can't do what's this all about. But it was, it was a tool. And if you were smart enough to use it, and if, if, if Porky wasn't stuffing his face with food at the time and realized what was going on and he got his foot on that door, 
just right to pop that puck out. That led to a lot of guys scoring goals, man, because it, 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 oh, it yeah. and then you'd, it would be funny because you'd look when you'd switch hands, the opposition would try doing the same thing and the puck would just wrap around the wall and they'd be like, how the hell is it popping out for you? And it's not popping out for us. And then come to find out all it is a little push on the door and it would pop it. I mean, it would pop it perfectly right out in that slot area. Oh yeah. And uh, just yeah. the positioning of the door. And there was a lot of guys benefited, uh, you know, from that. And, you know, there was always Porky had a big smile on his face. Got another assist tonight, boys. Got another assist tonight. So he always kept track of how many assists that he figured he got in the NHL. And I don't know. I'd hate to look back. He probably got more assists in the NHL by doing that than I did. Um, <laughs> Rob, for the listeners out there that, that aren't aware, you have the distinction of having a rule named after you. Yeah. Maybe walk us through how that all came about and why it is as such. Well, you know what? It was a time when you know, you're learning to play that game. And there was a lot of experimenting going on with big jerseys and Velcro with your arms coming off and, you know, just silicone tight jerseys. Guys were trying everything. And not so much in the NHL as they were in the minors when I, that first year I was down there. So you had a great chance to experiment. And I didn't like a tight jersey. I liked it loose. So I always wore a goalie cut jersey. And the one night the jersey came off, and, you know, the elbow pads fell off and it was like, you got the advantage. And it was like Jim Pizzatelli, we used to call him the fight doctor because he loved fighting yeah. <laughs> and he was our trainer. And so he would always work with it too and try to come up with ideas. So it got to the point where you cut all the straps off your shoulder pads and you just took little pieces of Velcro and put it on the pads of your shoulders and then it hooked to the jersey. So as soon as... You kind of just tuck your arms in and somebody grab on and they'd give you a tug. Everything, shoulder pads, jersey, and everything was gone. And, you know, guys, there was some nights when you were fighting guys and all of a sudden the jersey come off, they're standing there with this hand and you could just see them go, oh, shit. You know, it was like, because they knew they were in trouble. But, and then, you know, that was the upper hand. Uh, I think enough complaining from players and general managers and coaches over the years that kind of built to a point where they, hey, felt they needed to do something about it and for me it wasn't so bad because at that point in my career I wasn't having the same body as I used to have so you know to keep it covered up was probably the better thing anyways <laughs> but it went from I went from having nothing hold on to my first fight with having to tie down was an exhibition with Ty here and the little bugger got my shirt over my head and then pulled down on it and my head was in my sleeve and I could see him and he was punching me and I couldn't, I was, I was in a bad spot. And from that point on, I'm like, okay, this isn't going to work. So I put a snap on the front of my Jersey and snapped it to the front of my pants and the back of my pants. And at that point, it, you know, it didn't, they couldn't get it off. They couldn't lift it up. They couldn't, you know, anything over your head. And uh, it worked, it worked well as well. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that I had to kind of switch back to it later in my career when you were kind of comfortable doing it. Because if you had to do it earlier, it might not have had the same effect. But, you know, by that time, you were confident doing what you had to do. And by that time, there was a lot of guys in the game that, you know, you, you, you weren't too worried about. That you had to fight, not the same way it was the first few years. So, yeah, it went from one extreme to another. And, you know, now uh, you look back and it was, it's kind of cool. Because you always get somebody coming up, oh, the Rob Ray rule. And, you know, what do you think? And it's, I think it's cool. You know, my kid now, he's, you know, like I said, he's 12 and he's in a hockey and 
you know, once in a while it'll pop up and he just laughs and shakes his head, you know, because he's, he sees it all. He's got all the stuff here that, you know, I used along the way and he understands it. And, and, you know, he always will walk away when somebody says something, they go on. Yeah. Yeah. It really worked in the dad or, you know, he was always had something smart to say and uh, it's awesome. It's great. You know, you yeah. kind of indirectly left your stamp on the game, I guess. It's great. So you mentioned Jim Pizzatelli, the fight doctor, but I mean, he, he loved fighting, uh, but he was a great trainer. He was a guy that probably saved Clint Malarchuk's life. Uh, but he also made robes for the tough guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> talk about the robes. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what, the, the robes were a big thing. He started giving out robes to the tough guys, and then he would give them to guys that made the All-Star game and that along the way, too. And uh, But you would have ceremonies. Like, you would do a whole ceremony, and, you know, it, there was always something different. The guys would always plan it and, you know, present the robe, and it was a big thing. And and if yeah. somebody knew you got a robe, there was a lot of guys would be pissed off because they haven't got one, and they always were trying to do whatever they could do to get one. And uh, But he was very, very specific and selective on who he gave them to. I can remember the day we gave it to Charlie Huddy. And we were in L.A. at the practice rink, and we presented Charlie Huddy with a, a robe. And Charlie had a really good understanding of what it was all about. He literally cried when he got it. And we had a whole thing there after practice one day, and we had uh, – I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say everything that we had there, that you know, kind of celebrating it. and But a whole ordeal. And, uh, you know, here's a guy that had won multiple Stanley Cups, and, you know, it brought him to, to tears – us giving him the robe uh because of you know the way he played and the way we he was appreciated there and and uh how much the guys liked him so uh it, it was a pretty pretty cool thing mine's here too i get it's yellow and gold and it's got razor 32 on the back and sugar on it and you know he did it up he did it up right well speaking of appreciation yeah. I, I never i never got i never got one well, no, I well you should have got one for the press box <laughs> Now, speaking of appreciation, uh, Rob, you had a tough job, no question. Almost thankless to a point. Did you ever have a moment during your career where a vet or a certain teammate, they spoke to you about the appreciation you had for the role that you carried for 14 or 16 or 14 years you carried with the Buffalo Sabres? I mean, let's face it. A lot of smaller guys can play a foot taller when they know you're circumcised behind them. Yeah, you know what? We had great guys. And we had guys that understood the role and respected it. And, you know, whether <laughs> going out and drawing a penalty, the extra penalty or something, and they get a chance to be on the ice for a power play and, you know, help them statistically-wise and all that. I had Dale Howarchuk, the, the, I've had guys, but when Dale Howarchuk came up to me one night and, you know, sometimes I, I you know, with Dale, it was always kind of walked a fine line sometimes because he'd always has something to say, positive or negative, and I'm like, uh-oh, what's he going to say? And, you know, because he was, he was trying to help you, he's coaching you and, and there was things you would do in a game that he'd say, you know, Razor, you got to do this, do this different. And, and he came up one night and he just kind of stuck out his hand. He said, Hey, I want to thank you. He says, I got two points tonight and I don't know how many over the years from you drawing the penalty and making me feel comfortable on the ice that, uh, you know, I just want to let you know, appreciate what you're doing. And, you know, that happened a few times with guys and it made it all worthwhile because yeah. some nights you kind of, you're doing that job and you think you're on an island and guys looking at you like, what the hell are you doing type thing? And, but when guys 
like that understood it, respected it, and and were willing to let you know how they felt. That was that was the ultimate, uh, you know, uh, reward or pat in the back or whatever it may be. It, it meant a ton. It meant a ton. Squid. Yeah, no, I think uh, I don't think there's any question that uh, back in those days, the guys that scored the goals or got the points and everything always appreciated what those guys that did that terrible job that they had to go out and fight all the time uh, were appreciated by by their teammates. So I don't think there was any question of that. Um, maybe the, the players didn't tell them that often enough. Uh, probably myself, I was probably guilty of not, you know, relaying that. I always appreciated it. I always understood why they were there, what they were doing it for, and how it helped me. But maybe I didn't let them know that. And uh, But they were always appreciated. Um, I want to talk about now, we're, we just got a few minutes left. We want to again thank you for joining us for so long here. Uh, um, but I would like to ask you about moving behind the mic and working with the iconic Rick Jenneret. Yeah. And maybe the difference coming from a player to going from in front of the mic to behind it. Well, I never had aspirations of doing it. I never even thought about doing it. And uh, it was like the day before the first game after the year I had retired. And Larry Quinn had called me and he said, hey, do you want to do this? And I'm like, how do you do it? And he goes, don't worry about it. Just show up tomorrow night at the rink and you and Danny will do it. So I started working with Danny, you know, pre-games and in between periods. And he, Danny was awesome because he took the time to help you out and, you know, and trying to hold your hand along the way until you got comfortable. And I can remember when I had to make the move from being like pre-game and in between periods to being the third guy with RJ and Harry. And it was like, what am I doing here? Like, you know, with these two guys, you know, Harry Neal, I grew up listening to him in Hockey Night in Canada my whole life. And then RJ getting to know him here and how, you know, a legend he is here. And then there was myself. And I was scared to death most nights to say anything. And uh, and RJ was tough at the beginning sometimes, too, because he would, if you said the wrong thing, as soon as you went to commercial, he'd be like, what the hell are you saying that for? You know, he was on you a little bit. So he always kept you on your toes. And it, it was such a an opportunity to, to work with those guys and learn from those guys. There was nothing better than going on the road and sitting in some little dive bar that Harry and RJ always went to, you know, when they were on the road and sitting there listening to them tell stories and, you know, talk to you and make you feel a part of it. And, and uh, it was, it's awesome. And it's the greatest job you can have because you have no pressure, you know, the game, you know, the players you go in and you just talk hockey every night as you're standing there. So, yeah, it's it's the best job anybody can have, and and RJ get al- and I get along so well. We we talk, you know, every day almost, and not just hockey. It's always life. It's what's going on, and you know, we we have a great relationship and a friendship that uh, I cherish. And you know, he's he's a guy that is older than my father, I think, and and you know, I have a relationship with him that I wasn't always able to have with my father because he wasn't around all the time. So. It uh, it was great, and I, and I still to this day when we get a chance to work together, you know, he's only doing twenty some games this year, but yeah, you, you, you respect it, and I love getting him going and and just sitting back and listening to him because you know when when the puck when the play's on, shut up, you just let him do his thing. When the whistle goes until the puck drops, 
that that's your time to be talking. And, you know, that's not like that a lot of times now. There's a lot of interaction amongst color and, and uh, play-by-play. And with RJ, you just let him go because you never want to step on his toes or, or take a, something that happened on the ice away because you were blabbing about something else. And, yeah, it's great. And it's going to be uh, – it's great that we're seeing him. Being, either gonna... his, his name's going in the rafters and they're recognizing him for yeah. everything that he's done. Because I'll tell you, he's – uh, in the Sabres organization, he, he's if Gilbert and RJ are the two guys in this organization that are the most recognized, popular guys, uh, you know, in this in this town. And you know, I I'm just so happy that uh, not happy that he's retiring, but I'm happy that uh, he's getting the chance to be recognized in the way he should. Yeah, I, I noticed that uh, recently, and I thought that was fantastic. I, uh, you know, Rick's a great guy. Uh, he's from St. Catharines, actually, just down the road from where I live. And uh, I got to know him a lot uh, over the years. And uh, I, you know what? He's been there. He's been a, an icon there for so long. It's so nice to see that they're going to honor him with, with that. I, I think it's fantastic. Well-deserved. Yep. Well, listen, uh, Squid, Rob, time is always our enemy. We've run out of time. We want to thank you so much for joining us today. Some great stories, some great insights to your life as a Sabre. And now following the game, we just want to send a one word. We know what you're, the Buffalo fans are going through from Toronto ourselves. We've gone through the hell for a number of years. Patience, I would say, is the one word they have to have moving forward. A little patience. And all they got to do is look at the team down the street, the Bills, and what's happened with them just by letting it play itself out. And I think you're right, and I think they're on the right track. Yeah, I think they are. They're doing yeah. it right this time. And yeah, we want to get back to, uh, you know, where we were. And, you know, I think they're taking the proper steps right now to get there someday. Squid, final comment? I think they are. I believe they are too. I think they're doing a great job. They got a lot of really good young talent in the minors and, and in Buffalo. And I think it's just a matter of time, uh, you know, because they're going to have a high draft pick probably this year as well. And they'll get another good player. And, you know, the next thing you know, you have five, seasons in a row where you're picking the top 10 well you're going to pick you're going to have five pretty damn good hockey players three or four years down the road and i think uh this team is only going to get better and better yep yeah you're right there's some young kids looking forward to Owen power coming in next year and you know playing with all yeah. on the back end and yeah goaltending depth looks good for this hockey team right now these young kids that are playing the kid in michigan levi that's playing too i think new hampshire so you know, we, we've got some strength to work with now. And, uh, you know, it's not as thin as it used to be. So now you got the depth. you got some competitiveness against the key, uh, with these kids to try to battle for spots. And that's what you want to see. Okay, great. Yep, well, listen, Robbie, absolutely. thanks so much. Best of luck moving forward. And uh, thanks for joining us today. No problem, guys. Take care.